From CAFE and the Vox Media Podcast Network, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. You can argue about various kinds of regulations that protect only the person who has to abide by that regulation, like should you have to wear a bike helmet when you're biking? I put that in a different category from are you potentially putting other people at risk of an infectious disease? That's Catherine Rampell. She's an opinion columnist at The Washington Post. She's also a politics and economics commentator for CNN and a special correspondent for PBS NewsHour. Rampell made her name as an economics reporter at The New York Times, where she was the founding editor of the Economics blog. These days, her expertise extends far beyond economics. She's written extensively about everything from vaccine mandates to immigration policy, and she brings a data-driven approach to all of her analysis. Today, Rampell and I talk about the unfolding crisis in Afghanistan and the United States' moral responsibility to protect its Afghan allies. We also discuss the business community's decisions around vaccine mandates and whether we should be concerned about inflation. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Support for this podcast comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio and your money every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise is an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab. The show unpacks the stories making news in Washington and how they may affect your finances and investments. Listen today at schwab.com slash Washington Wise. That's schwab.com slash Washington Wise. Now let's get to your questions. This question comes in an email from Maria in Buffalo, New York, who asks, I read that Andrew Cuomo has $18 million left over in campaign cash. What can he do with that money? So that's an interesting question. Uh, Obviously, the governor of New York has announced his intent to resign. That should become effective in a few days. But one notable fact about his departure is that he has this enormous war chest, more than $18 million. And lots of people have been speculating with respect to that fact, what it means for his political future. The state assembly has announced it will not proceed with impeachment. If they continue with the impeachment process, that could have meant preventing Andrew Cuomo from ever running for statewide office again, or at least for the governorship. That's off the table, although Carl Hasty, the assembly speaker, backtracked a little bit and said there would be a report forthcoming from the assembly. So we'll see a second report at some time soon. But there's a lot of speculation about whether or not Cuomo will try to make a comeback, a political comeback of some sort. Part of the reason they think that is because of the question that Maria asks. This $18 million left over in campaign cash in an enormous war chest. Now, that's not unusual to have money left when one leaves office suddenly. Elliot Spitzer left under a cloud. He had about $2.9 million in campaign cash. Same is true for former Attorney General Eric Schneiderman, who had a pretty substantial war chest himself, about $8.5 million. So what can he do? Well, first, let's discuss what he cannot do. He cannot use that money, the $18 million, for personal expenses. He can't use it to take a trip for himself. He can't use it to buy jewelry for himself or a house or a yacht or anything like that. But otherwise, he has pretty broad ability to use it for political purposes. He can't use it in a federal or New York City campaign because the rules are more stringent, both on the federal level and on the city level. But he can use that money for a future campaign for himself. He can use that money to give to other candidates of any party. He can use it to give to party organizations. Those are fairly clear-cut ways that he can use those campaign funds as prescribed by law. Now, there's another more murky area, a category of expenditure that he can engage in 
that is campaign related. And the law is not fully clear there. As David Goodman points out in an article in the New York Times, quote, there can be some room for interpretation, campaign finance lawyers said. He could spend it on an effort at rehabilitating his image or even on travel, so long as the activities could be pegged in some way to his past government service or a future campaign for state office, end quote. And here's another way he can use the money, which is a little bit controversial and people don't love. He can use it to pay legal bills, which he has a significant amount of. And that's not new. Elliot Spitzer used campaign funds to deal with legal issues. The former Speaker of the New York State House, Sheldon Silver, used campaign funds. So did Eric Schneiderman. So far, according to public reports, Cuomo has already spent $285,000 on his personal lawyer, who spoke on his behalf in connection with the sexual harassment scandal. In fact, Governor Cuomo used campaign funds to pay legal expenses back when we investigated the closure of the Moreland Commission in 2014. It's a bit of a more open question, according to legal experts, whether or not if he ends up getting sued by some of these women and he wants to settle with them and pay a sum of money to resolve the claim, whether he can use campaign finance funds for that. And while often people don't like the idea of departing politicians being able to use campaign funds to get out of legal jeopardy and legal trouble, it's better than the alternative which may also be possible, which is that taxpayers pay for it, depending on the circumstances and the laws of the particular locality. Now, there are a couple of other options, and they relate to another question I got in an email from Jonah, who asks, does Andrew Cuomo have to give the money back, or can he give it away? And the answer to that question is he can do both. And there's a long tradition of politicians who leave in disgrace in particular, calling up donors and seeing if they want their money back. Both Elliot Spitzer and Eric Schneiderman did that, About 20% of the campaign funds that Schneiderman had were returned to donors, and about 50% of what Elliot Spitzer has. It's unclear how Andrew Cuomo is going to go about trying to return, or if he intends to return or wants to return, any of the $18 million to people who gave him that money in good faith, thinking that he would continue in office or run again. But we'll see about that. Now, on the question of whether or not he can give it away, he certainly can. And there's precedent for that, too. In fact, the departing governor is permitted to give to nonprofit organizations of any type So long as two conditions are met, the group is registered in New York, and he does not have any direct connection to them. And so it has been suggested, and there's precedent for this with Eric Schneiderman as well, that given the nature of the scandal that engulfed his governorship, and given the reasons that Andrew Cuomo has had to leave office, and given how much money he has in his war chest, that it might be a pretty good idea for him to donate a substantial amount to one or more nonprofit groups who protect the rights of women and help the victims of sexual assault. Not a bad idea. Stay tuned. There's more coming up after this. Support for this show comes from Washington Wise, an original podcast from Charles Schwab. Decisions made in Washington affect your portfolio every day. But what policy changes should investors be watching? Washington Wise, an original podcast for investors from Charles Schwab, tracks the stories making news right now and breaks them down for the average investor. Host Mike Townsend, Charles Schwab's Managing Director for Legislative and Regulatory Affairs, takes a nonpartisan look at the stories that matter most to investors. He explores topics like policy initiatives for retirement savings, taxes, and trade, inflation fears, the Federal Reserve, and how regulatory developments can affect companies, sectors, and even the entire market. In every episode, Mike and his guests offer their perspectives on how policy changes could affect what you do with your portfolio. Download the latest episode and follow at schwab.com slash Washington Wise or wherever you listen.
My guest this week is Catherine Rampell. She's an opinion columnist at The Washington Post and a commentator for CNN and PBS NewsHour. Catherine Rampell, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Great to be here. How are you? I'm doing all right, all things considered. <laughs> Always have to have that uh, disclaimer, you know, in this weird year and a half and all sorts of troubles in the world, but all things considered. Good. Doing well, fine. We've, we've, we've been wanting to have you on the show for a while. You and I had, I think, a brief discussion like a year and a half ago, weeks before the lockdown happened. So I'm glad we finally made it work. Each in our Likewise. respective home, in our respective homes. So, have you have you become one of these people? I don't think you have. Uh, who is suddenly overnight on Twitter an expert in all matters relating to Afghanistan? Uh, no, I, I hope not. I, I I hope I don't come off that way. I definitely have strong thoughts about um, how we have treated our allies and other vulnerable Afghans who are refugees there. And I've written quite frequently about refugee policy in the past. So I do feel competent to weigh in on that issue. But everything else in Afghanistan, um, you know, a little bit out of my lane. So I I, I try to be humble if I can. <laughs> I, I've been trying um, to do the same. that I don't know what the right <laughs> military decisions are. <laughs> um, it's, it's all the same people who overnight became armchair prosecutors and then expert epidemiologists and now are, are Afghan experts. We'll definitely talk about refugees. We are a country of Renaissance men and women. We, we are enabled, enabled, by, enabled by social media. <laughs> exactly. So, so further to that, we are recording this on Tuesday afternoon, August 17th. And there is a lot of discussion about what to do with interpreters and allies and other folks who have been aiding the U.S. cause and aiding our government and our country for a lot of years, there's a backlog, uh, I understand, of about 18,000 applications for special immigration visas. And you wrote, a, I thought, was a, a pretty powerful piece in the Washington Post, and you tweeted it out with the language, get people out, deal with paperwork later. Why is it so important to do it and to do it in that way? We have been failing our Afghan allies basically for as long as this war has been going on. And what I mean by that is there are interpreters, uh, cultural advisors, drivers, fixers, embassy clerks, et cetera, who have put their lives on the line, who have put a target on, on their own backs and the backs of their family members to help us, you know, ostensibly also to, to create a, a free and democratic state in Afghanistan as well, but they were they were protecting American uh, national security interests too. And we have promised these people that we would make sure that they would they were safe, that if the the Taliban or others came after them because of their uh, association with the United States, we would get them out. We even created a special category of visa, special immigrant visa, um, that is for interpreters and others who have helped uh, the, either the U.S. military or the U.S. government in some other capacity. There's a version of this program as well in for, for those who helped us in Iraq. Um, we have this program for our allies in Afghanistan, and um, it is severely broken. The weight to get processed is years um, on average. <laughs> and uh, we have basically abandoned these people. So this was the case well before, to be clear, well before either Biden announced um, the date of 
the troop withdrawal this year or Trump had announced the deal with the Taliban last year. We have been failing these people through multiple presidential administrations. Again, but it wasn't as urgent. It wasn't as urgent before. I mean, to, to some of these people, it was urgent, of course, yeah. right? Hundreds of people have been, doc- hundreds of, of people who have helped us have been documented as being assassinated either that themselves or their family members because of their help for us. So it's not like there was no no risk to them or no no lethal consequences to these delays in the past. But yes, it has gotten much more urgent as soon as it became clear that the United States was was withdrawing all of our um, all or almost all of our our military presence right. from the country. And if you talk with refugee organizations, they will say we have been telling this White House, the Biden White House, that it was really, really important to basically um, speed things up, to accelerate this process. It's a, it, this process is always very slow because the incentives are to do more and more vetting, right? You don't want to be the, the bureaucrat who let the one security risk through the cracks, obviously. On the other hand, these people for the most part, already had security clearances as a condition of- They were helping us in the first place. Right. right. I mean, people were, these were people who sometimes were carrying weapons around U.S. generals, right? If we didn't trust them to do that- um, we, we, we shouldn't have let them, the, the, the bar for then getting them out of the country should, should at least be the same as whatever bar they had to clear to get those kinds of jobs. Right. But in any event, um, you know, these refugee and human rights organizations have been saying it's really important to make sure our allies get out as well as other vulnerable Afghans. You know, there are people who helped media organizations like my own, the Washington Post, there are human rights advocates. There are other people who are likely to be targeted. But at least deal with the people for whom this special immigrant visa has been created. Yeah. And they kind of, a number of these groups kind of gift-wrapped an evacuation plan that was based on historical precedent where we have, for example, airlifted a, a lot of um, Vietnamese refugees after the fall of Saigon to Guam. Uh, we did the same thing for um Iraqi Kurds who had been targeted by Saddam Hussein in the 90s. We took them to Guam. We said, okay, this is a controlled setting. You're in the middle of the Pacific. You know, you're not going to swim to the United States, to the United States mainland. Um, if, if you are a security risk, we'll process you here um, where you're out of harm's way. And then if you qualify, we'll, we'll transfer you to the mainland. We've done this before. So you're not saying that we should airlift tens of thousands of Afghans to Ellis Island. You're saying- do something along the lines of what we've done before in Guam or somewhere else. Or a military of- base, right. right. Mm-hmm. So, or a military base, I mean, in, in the continental U.S. So we could have done all of this. We could have gotten these people out to safety, finished processing their paperwork somewhere else where they were not going to be assassinated, and we chose not to do it. In your mind, is there a, a ranking of categories of Afghans who have aided the U.S.? In other words, do you put people who help the military... Uh, up higher, people who help journalists a little bit lower. Do you view them all as kind of the same and in the same category of priority? I think they are all worthy. <laughs> if, if, if their association with us, whether it's uh, as a news organization or the U.S. military, has put them in danger, um, we need to keep our promise to them. They helped us. We need to make sure that they are safe. Uh, so I, I, and I And I don't think that there is time, really, for prioritization. Um, among this, these tens of thousands of people who, uh, many of whom have been, again, been waiting for years, either through their 
there are, um, through the special immigrant visa program or through various other kinds of refugee programs to come to the United States. Um, just get them out. Again, deal with the paperwork afterward. If it turns out that someone doesn't qualify, we can send them back. That's an option. Right. Although um, that's, you know, that becomes a little bit tough and um, dicey also to send people back. Yes, of course. But, you know, leaving them there to be executed because their paperwork isn't in order, yeah. I think is a, <laughs> no, a much I, more so permanent <laughs> I am with, I am with, you know, it's funny. Every once in a while, people will, will comment and, and send an email thinking that they know what my view is on something based on a question I've asked. Even when I agree, because I'm just trying to, you know, play devil's advocate or, or get at the core of what someone's argument is. And, and on this one, I will say unabashedly that I agree with you. And in fact, it seems to make so much sense both as a matter of morality, as a matter of promise, as a matter of reliance, and as a matter of, you know, basic humanity and safety for these people. Who could be opposed to this, Catherine? Oh, well, there are plenty of uh, right-wingers, the sort of usual xenophobes. But it's the same right-winger, but aren't some of these, and again, maybe a taxonomy is too difficult, and it's blowing my mind, so maybe you can help me unpack some of this a little bit. But it seems to me there's a category of people who are opposed to Biden who are using what you know appears to have been a series of mistakes, whether you like Biden or not, I'm sorry. This was not a well-done withdrawal. And if you're a person who thinks that there's nothing to criticize here, then you, know, you really need to re-examine yourself and your views about politics and your tribalism. But people are using you know, some of the scenes that we've seen out of uh, Afghanistan and, and the Kabul airport to bash Biden and to blame him for not protecting these folks. And isn't it some of these same folks or people aligned with some of these same folks who are now starting to say, like Laura Ingram and others, why should we be bringing a bunch of Afghans to the United States? Do you get that? I mean, consistency, I'm not sure was ever their strong suit. But on the other hand, I think we should have expected this turn of events. Look, even Trump has actually from what I had seen yesterday, I don't know if this has changed, made the, the reverse change of heart, where if you look at his policies while he was president, um, he was not only very anti-refugee writ large, um, he also had basically ground the special immigrant visa program to a halt uh, while he was president. There was a big lawsuit that said that they were taking too long to process these visas. Um, the Trump administration fought it. If you look at the numbers of people who came in under Trump versus in the several years before Trump was in office, you know, numbers are much, much lower, et cetera. So he clearly had no fealty to these people who had helped us, again, put their lives on the line to, in many cases, to protect U.S. troops, and yet sent out some press release yesterday saying, how dare Biden um, abandon our allies? So That's look, just speaking of consistency and lack thereof, <laughs> yeah. there you go. Look, so I'm sure it was totally cynical, obviously, and, and not a genuinely held belief. But look, if I'm happy for him to keep advocating uh, on behalf of, of our Afghan allies and refugees if, it's, if it manages to get a few of his followers on board, although I'm not convinced it will. But yeah, I mean, the, the, the argument from... Laura Ingram's and J.D. Vance's and others of the world has been to, you know, we should be afraid of these people. They're not going to be vetted. We're just going to let in all of these terrorists. Some have suggested this is part of, this was a big scheme as part of the so-called, you know, white supremacist, um, what's it called? The great replacement theory. You know, this is, this is a secret plan to, to bring in all of these brown Muslims. Um, 
to take the place of, of good old fashioned, uh, you know, true white Americans, et cetera. And I, obviously we could have seen this coming, but it also, besides the fact that it, all of this stuff is blatantly bigoted, uh, you know, it also ignores the fact that, again, many of these people, the ones who are applying for special immigrant visas, for the most part, had security that's, clearances. That's the point <laughs> of allowing these people us. in. Yes. That definitionally, the people that we're seeing in Afghanistan who should get some protection and safety and status are the people who helped us. Yes. To protect them and to protect us because the mission was twofold, right? Yes. So, so that's where that argument sort of tends to fail. Is there, is there any economic argument that you've heard people make for or against this kind of policy? Um, I mean, not specifically about the Afghan potential evacuees, but there is, you know, a longstanding discourse over whether immigrants in general and refugees in particular are good or bad for the U.S. economy and, and or the uh, U.S. budgets. And the uh, restrictionists, um, those who favor less, Im- who, who want less immigration, always claim that immigrants are bad for the economy and, um, you know, they, they drain federal budgets, et cetera. And particularly, you know, they make this claim about refugees, which I guess in some sense would make intuitive sense because refugees are people who often come here penniless, right? They come here out of desperation. And in fact, the uh, Trump administration early on in Trump's presidency commissioned a, an internal study over what was the budgetary effect of refugees specifically. I think I probably Stephen Miller was involved in in commissioning this, and they found that in fact, over the course of ten years, refugees actually paid more in in taxes than they received in benefits. When they first come, um, they do need a lot of assistance, right? They need help with housing and and food and everything else because they often come here with just their clothes on their backs. But over time, they they find jobs, they get off of benefits, um, and they they actually are an economic boon to the United States. And again, that's just refugees. And that's the, that's the selection of immigrants who you would expect to be um, least likely to have a net fiscal benefit to the U.S. But if you look at immigrants writ large, the same is true. In fact, there was a, a big study done by a, a, a group of economists uh, for the National Academy of Sciences a few years ago, maybe about four or five years ago, where they looked at all of the possible studies that had had been done on the economic and fiscal impact of immigration. And they found that, in fact, immigrants in general uh, tend to pay more in taxes than they receive in benefits, um, certainly at the federal level. At the state and local level, if their kids are in school, they might take more out, you know, receive more in terms of uh, benefits because their kids are because it costs something to, to educate the kids. But then when the kids grow up, the kid, the, the children of immigrants tend to be among the most productive contributors to the economy that we have more, more productive than, than, you know, those who were not the children of immigrants. So now is that, is that in business circles, put aside politicians and others, is it your sense having written about this and studied this for a long while that, that putting aside political considerations that generally speaking in the business community, immigration is viewed as a positive? Yeah, there are actually a, a number of nonprofit uh, coalition type things that receive a lot of support from the business community for 
various kinds of immigration reform, whether we're talking about uh, a permanent legislative fix to DACA, for example, or fixes to the skilled immigration system, which is incredibly broken, or uh, for, you know, seasonal agricultural workers. The business community in general um, has has been supportive of more legal pathways to immigration, um, which makes sense not only because these are productive workers uh, for the most part, but also immigrants are overrepresented amongst the entrepreneurs, founders of Fortune 500 companies, for example. So uh, many of the the leader, the founders of the Googles of the world, for example, are themselves immigrants. So they they may have some personal, you know, reason to to uh, align their organization with this effort. But there's also just a you know a, a business incentive. You you want the most qualified workers to come here and contribute to the United States. It gets me wondering on a bunch of other issues, which we'll talk about. At least some of which we'll talk about. Also, is this idea that you know, on, on issues that are considered progressive, and I don't think immigration should be progressive or conservative view. I think that there's a lot of good for the country. And there are lots of people who come to this country from other places who end up being in their own politics, progressive or not progressive. And that really, to me, shouldn't matter so much. But we always think about how much laws can do and politicians can do and how much, you know, protest or, or individual, uh, you know, lobbying and activism can move the needle do you think at the moment that businesses and corporations and, and the, the business community in general has a greater ability to affect public policy and to lead on issues like immigration than they've had before? Or is it about the same? That's very hard to judge. Certainly the business community for better or worse, I think has been able to exert a lot of influence over policy through lobbying over the years. And again, it's I'm, talking, some- I'm talking about things like, I'll give you an example. That, that was, that was an unfair thing, overly broad question on things like family leave or other kinds of things. Is it politicians who lead or businesses who lead? Uh, yes. <laughs> I think politicians listen to the constituents who matter most to them. And, and sometimes that is their funders, whether it's individuals or or companies that donate money to them. Sometimes it's their base. Uh, so I'm sure the the exact mm, concoction of incentives varies to some extent from um, politician to politician and from issue to issue. Probably the areas where the business community has the most influence are the ones where the public isn't paying attention, where it's not a really a particularly salient issue to the typical voter. So um, as an example, you know, there are a lot of trade restrictions that are put into effect for the benefit of very particular industries or even individual companies and are costly to consumers. But most consumers don't pay attention to it. They're not paying attention to trade policy. They're not paying attention to whether we have tariffs on, um, on steel or not, or at least even if they're aware of it, it's not the primary issue for them. Most most voters have pretty weakly held beliefs on trade. In fact, most uh, the last I had looked, most voters are, are relatively pro-trade and have become more pro-trade over the years, despite the sort of stereotype that, you know, particularly fueling uh, Trump's 
rise, you know, that Americans have become more isolationist and, and anti-globalist or whatever. In fact, the opposite has been true. And same, same deal actually with immigration, that Americans have become much more pro-immigrant in recent years, despite the rise of Trump. Um, but most people- Just can we, pa- can we pause on that for a second? Sure. Do, do you have any, is there any research or data to suggest why that is, is one reason on immigration, for example, as the most recent census shows, that we have become a more diverse country or is it something more complicated than that? I, to be honest, I don't know how I would assign um, responsibility for those trends. I think it's it's partly, um, probably partly demographics. If you are coming into contact with more people whom you might have otherwise otherized um, and realize that they're, they're, you know, human and interesting and in ways very much like you and in ways not like you, but not in a threatening way, maybe that means that you are more accepting of them. Certainly, I remember that after the uh, 2016 election, there was some social science research to suggest that the areas that had had been more pro-Trump were ones that had fewer immigrants or had a fewer, a smaller increase in immigration, something to that effect, that there had been this narrative that the, the uh, all of these people were voting for Trump because they had, you know, they were upset that their counties were overrun with with foreigners or whatever. But in fact, that didn't seem to hold up in the data. Um, so it could be that, you know, I think there's also the possibility that Trump himself motivated people into in the opposite direction of his own <laughs> beliefs, if that makes any sense. You know, he was such a polarizing figure. Um, on a number of issues, I think he uh, drove people in the opposite direction, people who might have otherwise been ambivalent about some particular issue or other. Immigration is one. Trade, as I mentioned, is another. Although I think support for trade had been rising even before Trump. And, uh, you know, support for universal health care coverage of some kind also went up um, under Trump's presidency, uh, even as he and his uh, fellow Republicans had been trying to pare back Obamacare, et cetera. So there is some, to some extent, I think it's these structural things. To some extent, there was this uh, Trump effect. And I wonder how much that may fade in the years ahead. Maybe um, once he's out of office and people aren't as horrified by our treatment of immigrants, <laughs> separation of the border, et cetera, they're going to well, go de- back to depends, being afraid of them. I don't know. It depends on what lessons his acolytes have learned and the people who would walk in his footsteps, like Ron DeSantis, among others. And and maybe they will adopt some of the planks of Trumpism. Maybe they will adopt all of them. Maybe it'll be a hybrid. I, you know, I don't know. My conversation with Catherine Rampell continues after this. Can we talk about COVID for a moment? What's your, what's your sense of how much the economy in the in the country, and you can speak globally if you want, but in the country is stalled or on pause because of lingering doubts about when we might have the end of the disease? Because some things look like they're churning along and we had a great jobs report, everyone says. The S&P 500, I think, has doubled since it's low. Uh, one of the speediest recoveries from a from a low to a doubling I think in history, perhaps. So is COVID still a drain on the economy or not? There is a lot of uncertainty about that, which I realize is not a satisfying answer. But for example, the jobs report that you mentioned, which was you know gangbuster numbers, better than expected, uh, upward revisions to previous months, that is based on a 
a couple of surveys that were conducted largely before the recent spike mm-hmm. in COVID cases. Because uh, every month, um, the unemployment numbers and the hiring numbers, they're from two different surveys, but they're they're based on a snapshot of basically the middle of the month, more or less. And, the num- and so that was in, uh, I guess, or I think it was indexed to like J- July 12th or, some- or somewhere around there. And it was really in the back half of the month that case rates went up. So there's a, a, a big delta-shaped asterisk about that report. And the question is, what happens going forward? Will consumers and workers change their behavior because they're worried about engaging in, you know, normal economic activities that maybe they had reemerged, you know, from their homes and decided to go to restaurants and movies and fly on planes and and stuff again. And now they're going to retrench. There is the risk that that will happen. On the other hand, uh, this sort of good news, bad news (laughs) version of, of that forecast is I think a lot of people have COVID fatigue and they're tired of holding up, even though they tell pollsters uh, that they think people, even healthy people should stay home as much as they can. Gallup had a bunch of questions about this recently where they asked people, what's the right behavior right now? And and they share people who said you should stay home, you should isolate, went up. But are they actually going to act on that advice? I don't know, because I think people are just exhausted and and ready to move on with their lives. But it's interesting to me how businesses have have adapted to all of the anxieties and uh, frustrations of their customer bases, because to some extent, you want, you know, as much mask wearing and or, you know, vaccine checks, you know, proof of vaccination, et cetera, in order to get the people who want to feel safe to feel safe and feel comfortable going to your establishment, whether it's a cruise ship or a restaurant. But on the other hand, having those kinds of um, requirements can also alienate a set of your customers. So you see companies kind of deciding which which set of their <laughs> which set of their customer base are they willing to cut off, right? Because either decision will get them in trouble and will potentially lose them some business. I mean, I remember a year ago when the airline executives were begging the Trump administration to require mask wearing while in flight because they didn't want to have they to They didn't be, want to be the, the bad guys. Right. They didn't want to be the ones to say, I'm sorry, sir or, or ma'am, you know, you have to wear your mask. They want to be able to to point to this federal ordinance or whatever um, and say, you know, if it were up to me, you could do whatever you want, but big bad government requires it. And this would have the <laughs> this would have the benefit for the airlines of basically allowing them to pass the buck keep people feeling safe and in theory limit some of the heat that was being directed their way from the uh, anti-mask wearing right. contingent of their customers. It's like when they say you got to put your phone on airplane mode when you're still at the gate, they can point to federal regulation. Right. It's, right. It's not, so, so is, and I think you've written about this as well. You're talking about masks and airlines and businesses. Now we have the issue of vaccination. It seems to me the same issue is playing out. Although 
some airlines, United and others, have basically said for all of its staff, they have to be vaccinated, otherwise they can't work. Is business going to be, again, it's a theme, I guess, in this conversation, just curious your thoughts. Is business going to be the uh, the tip of the spear on mandatory vaccinations in this country? I am very pessimistic about that happening for exactly the dynamic I was just describing, that for businesses, it is risky to implement a policy that is going to be polarizing, even if they think it's it would be good for their bottom line, it would keep people safe, um, It's maybe it's the right thing to do as well if they care about that. I think that they're going to be too skittish. And there have been all of these fawning news stories about lots of organ, lots of companies that have publicly announced that they are requiring vaccination for workers and sometimes customers, in some cases customers. But if you actually look at the numbers, the companies that have primarily been announcing this are ones for whom their workforce is already almost entirely vaccinated. And in some cases, they're kind of creating a two-track policy where they have a mandate for people who are vaccinated and a no mandate for those who aren't. So Walmart is an example of this, where Walmart got all of this great splashy news coverage for announcing a vaccine mandate, but in fact, the requirement was only for basically their white-collar workers, people who worked in in corporate or, you know, in like the regional, whatever, management offices, and not for their workforces who probably needed more motivation to get vaccinated people who work in their retail stores or in warehouses. Uh, It was the same deal for Walgreens. Uber and Lyft also had a a requirement of vaccination for their corporate employees, not for their drivers who are contractors, um, but who are probably likely to have lower vaccination rates. Or, you know, another example is um, Danny Meyer's high-end restaurant group announced this, again, for, for both their staff and customers, which is great. I'm glad that they're, you know, they're mandating this, but who's going to these high-end restaurants in New York? Probably people who are more likely to be vaccinated anyway. And Danny Meyer is is the founder and still chair of the board for Shake Shack. And there was no mandate there. It's a separate company. Right, but- that's a very interesting dichotomy in those two places. But do you think there's a difference between or, or greater efficacy or less with respect to the mandating of vaccines for employees, a workforce of a company, whether it's a restaurant business or something else, versus a vaccine mandate for patrons, customers, whether they're coming to a concert or diners and restaurants, does one have a greater effect on sort of public health generally than the other, or are they in tandem with each other? I think what really matters is for any kind of government intervention, right? Are there externalities here? right? If people engage in this activity, are they going to put other people at risk? You can argue about various kinds of regulations that protect only the person who has to abide by that regulation. Like, do you, should you have to wear a bike helmet when you're biking? For example, I put that in a different category from, are you potentially putting other people at risk of an infectious disease by patronizing this concert or this restaurant or this gym or what have you? And If there is a risk of that, then yes, I think that it is warranted for there to be some sort of requirement uh, for people to to take precautions that will protect those around them. And those kinds of precautions can be mandated by the establishment, the concert venue, the gym, the, the the fancy restaurant. Or they can be mandated by the government. And I think you kind of have to have government playing bad cop here because, again, 
Otherwise, you're going to have businesses sorting into the lane that basically just reflecting back the preference, the existing preferences and behaviors of right. their their own customers. So, you know, if we're talking about um, who's going to go to to a Danny Meyer restaurant, who's going to go to um, some theater or whatever. I mean, Broadway theaters are actually kind of interesting because it's most of broad. Well, a, a number of Broadway shows rely heavily on tourists, so I don't know what's going to happen there because the tourists may come from places where vaccination is vaccination rates are lower. But I think you probably need government intervention to actually affect behavior again for, for both the workers in these industries and for the, the customers, consumers, if the goal is to limit the spread of disease. I, mean, I find this point you're making really fascinating. And as I'm hearing you talk about it, I have, I guess, a further question. And, and the, the point is that there are businesses who don't want to be the bad guy but they understand rationally that both for their own workforce and for productivity and also to the extent they care about the, the general welfare of the, of the public, that mask mandates or vaccination requirements would be good. They just don't want to be the ones to be implementing them alone or piecemeal. And I get all that. And so when these things are mandated by localities, businesses by and large, I think, have not protested, uh, but they quietly sort of go along with it. But you have the reverse happening, too that I think there are politicians who are also weak and you would hope that they would be thinking, well, you know, economics and good public safety policy and medicine and science all conspire to tell us that some of these mandates would be good. And are there some of those people who have the opposite view and they don't want to impose the mandates, but they're hoping that the local businesses do and they're hoping that people stay home. Yes, I think I think there is a lot of passing of bucks. Except <laughs> with around. one exception, but, but that's all well and good. And, and I get that. But you do find, and we talked about Florida and the cruise industry and Ron DeSantis a moment ago, you would think that a, that a sort of smart-minded, good-faith person who understands the science, but also is a political creature and ambitious and wants to become president, would basically say, yeah, look, I, I'm against this stuff, but the court said it's doing it. Or an industry like the cruising industry said it's doing it. What am I going to do? But a guy like that goes the extra mile and does what businesses are not doing in the opposite direction. He's deciding to fight it. Can you explain that other than, I guess, pure politics? I think there's an, a very interesting counterexample here, which is the governor of Arkansas, Asa Hutchinson, yeah. who had signed legislation maybe in April that barred school districts from requiring mask mandates. School districts and I think um, localities in general, I forget. It wasn't only schools, but uh, obviously it has become a very critical issue given the rise in, in infections in his state and the start of the school year. And he said that he regretted signing that law because he thought schools should be able to decide for themselves whether this was a necessary step to keep kids and, and presumably teachers and other staff safe. And he asked his legislature to reverse it, and they refused. And a court struck it down. And he even went on TV and said, I regret having done this. But thank goodness the court stepped in and held that as unconstitutional. Um, and, and I give him props for acknowledging that the policy was wrong. I think that takes uh, a lot of courage. And now he's saying, you know, I, I want to do what I think is in the interest of my state. So, so there is, you know, in some ways, like you kind of want government to, to bail out businesses and, and be the bad cop. But sometimes government doesn't want to, you know, if government by which I mean politicians. And then then you need courts, also part of government, but <laughs> different different part, you know, to rescue politicians from themselves. And judges are obviously much more um, 
shielded from day-to-day political considerations, very somewhat from state to state, but they're more able to make polarizing or, or otherwise controversial decisions. Now, in the case of Ron DeSantis, I think he wants this fight. I think it, you know, he's sort of trying to, I don't know, martyr himself. Martyr is maybe not the right word, but he wants to be able no, to No, because he doesn't want to die. No, right, exactly. <laughs> um, doesn't care if his fellow Floridians do, apparently. But, but he is happy to keep having this fight with Biden, with the courts, with others to say, you know, I am the, I am the true champion. Now, I don't know, maybe in the back of his mind, he's saying, gee, I really hope I lose this case. Yeah, I have he's no probably idea, not saying but that. He's probably I don't know that he cares. Because he's, he's seen some of the straw polls that put him in second place behind the former president himself. Yeah, I think it's pretty clear that he's pursuing this strategy as, as a prelude to a presidential campaign. Whether it will actually succeed is a separate question. And, and I do wonder how many Floridians will die on the altar of what is ultimately Ron DeSantis's failed presidential campaign. <laughs> Can I ask a more basic question for, on behalf of people who are trying to understand spin that people put out on economic metrics? You know, I, I consider myself a you know, reasonably educated person, but in 2021, and people on all sides do this, they cite year over year statistics, whether it's about employment numbers or sales or gas prices or, you know, unemployment or the stock market, whatever the case may be, are all of those year over year, uh, you know, increases or decreases just nonsensical and statistical noise because a year ago we were in the middle of a complete shutdown of the country? It does definitely distort a lot of economic measures. And uh, I feel for all of the economists who are, who you know, who are hoping to use long-term time series data to do <laughs> assessments of whatever, and they're going to have all of these screwy numbers because of the pandemic. But you know? if like Delta Airlines says, you know, year over year, we're up, you know, 49%, does that mean anything? Uh I would not necessarily look at that particular comparison, but if Delta Airlines says today versus 2019 um, or some other benchmark, that still may be informative. Uh, but but yeah, a, a lot of the key economic metrics are really distorted right now, and it makes it hard to assess where we are because you have this low base. If you're comparing things year over year, you know, a very low base from last year. You also have some hopefully temporary shocks that are distorting numbers um, because supply chains are still, in many cases, bottlenecked and people are still afraid to work or, or what have you. So there are a lot of things that make it difficult to assess uh, our, recon- our relative economic health right now. And, and even, you know, nearer term things, like I said, you know, if the jobs report was based on surveys conducted before the recent Delta driven surge, how informative is that? And that's much more recent. So it's, you know, it's clear as mud right now. <laughs> so, so here's an economic metric that, <laughs> that I always wonder about, and maybe I'm just cranky, but I hope you can address it. And that is gas prices. And sometimes gas prices are up, sometimes they're down. When I worked in the Senate, I remember being a staffer and various senators on the Democratic side did a press conference about high, ga- about high gas prices. People now are talking about high gas prices to complain about 
the Biden plan, are gas prices at any given time a real indicator about anything? Is it a real bellwether of anything or is it just sort of political football? Well, I don't want to discount the fact that they really do matter to people's pocketbooks, right? No, no, of course. But I mean, are they are they an indicator of something more broad in the economy? And or is it is it fair to say that the particular policies of presidents affect gas prices or do they just ebb and flow? So in general, I think presidents get too much credit for any good development in the economy, too much blame for any bad one. They, they do not control major economic forces. They do not control gas prices. And gas prices in general are very volatile and responsive to lots of world events and shocks. And in fact, when the Federal Reserve is judging inflation and whether they are adhering to their dual mandate of maximum employment and stable prices, they generally strip out gas prices. They strip I out- I knew it. They follow what is called core inflation. And core just means we strip out gas prices our energy prices, I should say, and we strip out uh, food because both of those come from commodity markets that are really volatile, that can be responsive to like, you know, some weird natural disaster or, uh, you know, a drought or whatever, you know, if we're talking about uh, food that causes numbers to bounce around and don't necessarily reflect the underlying forces of, you know, of price pressures, like is... What, what's going on? How hot is the economy? You know, how how stagnant is the economy? It doesn't really tell you that much. Now, gas prices can eventually feed into other prices. Obviously, we saw that to some extent in the 70s. Um, but gas prices alone, generally, economists say, like, set them aside. They're not that informative. Again, that's not to say they don't matter to consumers' pocketbooks. They do. It's just when you're trying to gauge all of these, like, macroeconomic measures of health, they're not that useful. Now, that's an interesting point. It's sort of an analog to this issue that I've talked about with some guests and written about, which is the trimming of the mean. You get all this noise at, at the extremes when you're trying to come up with you know, a relevant assessment of a data set. And if you have noise in it, that's a problem. And so you have to strip out the extremes. And in this case, you strip out gas and food, and that makes perfect sense. But you mentioned inflation. Should we be worried about that? Are people overly worried about that? Underworried about that? I have been saying for several months, you know, don't freak out. It looks like the factors driving inflation are mostly transitory, to use the term of art, because of reopening pains, Um, meaning that everything got shut down, right? And then all of a sudden, everybody wants to do stuff again. Everybody wants to go to the same restaurant again. And there are fewer restaurants open, at least in New York. Everyone wants to travel again. And there's a finite number of flights, maybe even fewer flights than there were a year ago. Uh, Everyone wants to go on a road trip. And, um, you know, cars are hard to come by. Look, I'll tell you what's what's difficult, what's, what's gone up. And, you know, I take Ubers from time. I hadn't taken one in months and months. And- Ubers and Lyfts are a lot more expensive than they used to be. Is that a sign of inflation or is that just reopening noise? So where I was going with all of this is that it seems like these are temporary reopening pains, that you have this sudden return in demand. Supply has not yet caught up. You know, It's hard to ramp up capacity to meet that increase, that sudden surge in demand. And that's true with Ubers. 
Um, you know, there are a lot of Ubers ha- had trouble finding drivers because the work was seen as risky because people, you know, for a long time, people weren't taking Ubers. So like, I'm going to find something else to do, whatever. So there is this sort of transitory effect um, and it will go away. Now, the risk is that people don't judge these price increases around them to be transitory. And then they, and then it becomes sort of a, a self-fulfilling prophecy in, in that people say, huh, prices are going up across the board. I guess I should raise my prices or I should demand more money from my boss this year so that I can afford the rising cost of living. And then it becomes right. it's, it's a psychological it's a, domino effect, right? Right, right. It's, it's so it's, it's, um, it's, you know, become self-sustaining. Right. And that's the state of the world you really don't want to be in. You get this kind of inflationary spiral. And I don't think we're there yet. Certainly bond yields don't (laughs) suggest we're there yet, you know, and you can kind of impute what people's expectations are for inflation, longer term inflation are from, from bonds. So I don't think we're there yet, but I am worried about that happening for a number of reasons, because again, these supply chain bottlenecks, these reopening pains, whatever you want to call them, they have persisted for longer than I think most people expected them to. You know, it's, you're still having trouble finding chips, for example, microchips to, so that's, that's holding potato chips, potato chips, <laughs> maybe potatoes, but maybe, <laughs> I don't know. There are sort of shortages of all sorts of weird things. So for all I know, potato chips, some brand of potato chips having issues too, but you know, chips, which go in cars, which go in uh, various other kinds of electronics, cell phones, things like that. Those are still hard to come by. Uh, you know, there have been, as I said, shortages in, in other other realms as well. And then you have other kind of freak problems. Like there were natural disasters in Germany and in China, I think last month, that like floods that washed out roads for factories that probably uh, messed up supply chains that were already quite fragile. The Delta variant has caused problems already. I remember reading an article a couple of weeks ago about how um, shipping crews, I think in in um, East Asia, were not being allowed onto land. I forget what country it was in. I mean, probably China or South Korea. They weren't they weren't allowed to like come onto land because because there was concern about the Delta variant, and you know you don't want people more more, more people coming and going and onto your borders. And so these um, sailors who were on these big container ships were stuck there and that could have some effect, right? Like, are they going to be willing to work forever if they, they can't get any time off? I don't know. So, and then there was a, a cyber attack on a port, I think in South Africa. So there were, you know, in addition to the the big picture of how do we ramp up production again? How do we get these, these fragile uh, supply chains back up and running? You have all of these other annoyances that are happening, which will further you know, restrict supply at a time when people, it seems like, are willing to buy stuff. And that, it, the longer that goes on, the more it can feed into these expectations and it becomes self-sustaining. So that's what I am worried about. I, I think it's an unlikely scenario still at this point, but I so would- I'm not, So you're telling me, I just want to be clear to our millions of listeners, that Catherine Rampell says you should not worry too much. Yeah, Um you know, again, I try to be humble about this because we're in a state of the world that we, we're, we're facing circumstances that we have never faced before. And so it's very hard to know how things are going to shake out. 
Uh, you know, it's hard to say like, oh, well, the last time we had a global pandemic, right. um, you know, X, Y, or Z happened because we didn't, we didn't have a global pandemic in a globally interconnected economy like the one we have today. So it's very hard to know how things are going to shake out. But for now, it looks like these, these factors are mostly transitory. Um, they will fade so long as consumers and businesses believe that they will fade, I think we're fine. Um, and, and to some extent, you know, the more we talk about inflation, it's sort of perverse, but the more we talk about it, I feel like the more we can almost will it into being. And you get this, I get the sense that there are- Should we cut this out of the podcast? <laughs> no, no, it's fine. I don't think, I think it's a bad uh, strategy to pretend people aren't worried about it because that can backfire too. I mean, there are countries that have- um, doctor their inflation statistics, hoping that that will magically transform people's expectations. And instead that caught, you know, denying reality also causes people to panic. And I think what the Biden administration has been doing with some moderate success is basically acknowledging people's concerns about the issue and then very publicly talking through, here's what we think caused them. Here's, you know, the, the various paths on which these numbers could go if these kinds of contingencies happen. Right. But does um, that matter? I mean, are, are, are small businesses or mom and pop restaurants and other folks adjusting their prices up or down based on that kind of explanation from the White House? Um, maybe not directly, but I, if that's the chatter that they hear, if that, you know, enters people's brains, so they're not only hearing Mitch McConnell or whoever saying repeatedly Biden is ca- is going to cause hyperinflation, then yeah, I think it can help. Um, you know, I don't know that people are, are making their day-to-day decisions solely on press releases from the White House. I assume nobody is doing that. <laughs> but the, dis- the general discourse matters. And, and like I said, I think those of us who write about these issues, who talk about these issues in, in, in public fora, I think it's important to just be as clear as possible about what we think is going on, what the risks are, and to be humble about what we don't know. And I think the Fed has been doing a pretty good job at this as well in in saying, here's what we think is happening, and here are how things could go awry, but here are the tools that we have to deal with it, et cetera. And I think that's why you see financial markets so far um, remaining pretty calm and, 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 you know, bond prices, bond yields, um, you know, not reflecting expectations of, of uh, persistent higher inflation. Catherine Rampell, thanks for joining us. It was a real treat. Thanks so much. Thank you. My conversation with Catherine Rampell continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. To try out the membership free for two weeks, Head to cafe.com slash insider. Again, that's cafe.com slash insider. I want to end the show this week by talking once again for a moment about Afghanistan. Obviously, there's been a lot of impassioned debate about the Biden administration's decision to withdraw U.S. forces and the way they've gone about it. Those are two separate questions, by the way, and I think should be considered as such. But there seems to be, at least in this moment, I think a fairly broad consensus that we should do whatever we can to help the Afghan citizens who risked their lives 
really risked their lives to help us. As I discussed with Catherine Rampell in the interview, military interpreters and contractors and their families find themselves in an especially precarious position as the Taliban solidifies control of the country. A lot of people think legitimately that if we don't get them out, we're leaving them to die. They helped us. How can we abandon them? And I am one of those people. And so lots of folks have been reaching out to ask how they can help. And I've been thinking a lot about what can be done. So let me share a couple of things that we at CAFE have learned. There are about nine official organizations that partner with the U.S. government to help resettle refugees. Two of the leading groups are the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops and the International Rescue Committee. As we speak, both of those organizations are helping process Afghan special immigrant applications at Fort Lee in Virginia. There is also an organization called No One Left Behind that's also doing great work and worthy of your consideration as well. You can find the full list of organizations and links to donate in the show notes for this episode. These groups rely on federal contracts and also charitable donations to fund their efforts, so please consider giving. As I said a moment ago, there appears to be a rare bipartisan consensus that something has to be done for the interpreters and other Afghan allies. Republican Senator Joni Ernst of Iowa has advocated for expediting the Special Immigrant Visa, or SIV, program. This is what she said this week about our Afghan allies. Quote, We will take them. Iowans have always been very welcoming to those that need to immigrate and those refugees that were running away from disaster in their own country. And I do think we can play a role, and I think it's important that we do that, end quote. And then, of course, there was this beautiful letter sent by Republican Governor of Utah, Spencer Cox, to Joe Biden. This is what he wrote in part. Quote, I'm deeply saddened by the human tragedy currently unfolding in Afghanistan. I recognize Utah plays no direct role in shaping U.S. diplomatic or military policy, but we have a long history of welcoming refugees from around the world and helping them restart their lives in a new country. We are eager to continue that practice and assist with the resettlement of individuals and families fleeing Afghanistan, especially those who valiantly helped U.S. troops, diplomats, journalists, and other civilians over the past 20 years. And the governor closes his letter by saying, quote, please advise us in the coming days and weeks how we can assist, end quote. Well, those sentiments are wonderful and helpfully bipartisan, but let's see how long that lasts. Because already on the right, or I suppose the far right, people are already starting to fear monger about refugees. You may have seen this from Laura Ingram of Fox News, who said, quote, she really said this, quote, is it really our responsibility to welcome thousands of potentially unvetted refugees from Afghanistan? All day, we've heard phrases like, we promised them. Well, who did? Did you? Did you? And perhaps quite predictably, former Trump senior advisor Stephen Miller, he of anti-immigration fame, spoke out on Twitter against accepting refugees. He wrote, quote, it is becoming increasingly clear that Biden and his radical deputies will use their catastrophic debacle in Afghanistan as a pretext for doing to America what Angela Merkel did to Germany and Europe, end quote. To my mind, those kinds of sentiments are ugly and un-American. So maybe the bipartisan consensus that's developing won't stand, but I hope it does. As I posted on my Twitter account this week, welcoming refugees is one of the things that makes America great. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Catherine Rampell. 
If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet, or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe Studios and the Vox Media Podcast Network. Your host is Preet Bharara. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior producer is Adam Waller. The technical director is David Tattashore. The CAFE team is Matthew Billy, David Kurlander, Sam Ozerstaden, Noah Azulai, Nat Wiener, Jake Kaplan, Chris Boylan, and Sean Walsh. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned.